This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to GYC. This is our first seminar session. Brian Hyman, he's sitting up here in the front. We are co-presenting this seminar. And um, I encourage you to come throughout. We're going to be going through a lot of important material. And I think you're going to find as we go through the seminar, you're going to see just how important this book is to us today. So let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and we'll get right into our presentation. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. I thank you for each person here. I pray for each seminar that's happening right now that your spirit would be poured out. And I just pray that you will bless us in a special way this morning as we go through this message about the great controversy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I have here in my hand a copy of the great controversy. How many of you have gotten this book from the GYC booth? Very good, many of you. And I would encourage you all, all of you to do so. It's very inexpensive. It's like $3.50. You will not find that at the ABC for such a good price. This is an excellent book. And as you see from the title of my presentation, which is the title of the seminar, I believe that this is the most important book outside of the Bible. Now, that may not have always be true, have been true, obviously, but since this book has been written, for the time that we are living in today, especially for us as Seventh-day Adventists, and I believe that even for people who are not Seventh-day Adventists, outside of the Bible, this book is the most important book outside of the Bible for people living in the world today. And I'm going to... And this is a picture, as you can see, of the Great Controversy, the Standard Edition, 1911. This book went through various versions. It started with the 1858 vision when Ellen White put it into writing, and it went through various forms, and finally the 1888 edition, and then finally the last revised edition, 1911, you know, which is interesting to me. There's people out there today that say, oh, the 1888 version is better or more pure than the 1911 version. And I'm like, don't you realize that Ellen White personally oversaw the, the revision? So anyway, this is the current edition that we have that Ellen White oversaw four years before her death. And I want to start off with a personal testimony. Um, when I was in the third grade, and Anna, I think you were in the same class with me. I have a classmate way back from third grade here this morning. And um, so time goes by. But way back, no, it's not. But back in third grade, my third grade teacher issued a challenge to those of us in the class to read as many books as we could. And I was nine years old at the time, and so the book that I picked to start reading was the book Patriarchs and Prophets, which is the first in the series of the Conflict of the Ages. And that started a lifelong journey for me since then of reading the Spirit of Prophecy. And by the time I was 11 years old, I finally got to, it took me a while, I mean, now I think I could read faster, but it took me two years to get through the whole series. And finally, when I was in the fifth grade, I got through the book, The Great Controversy. And one of the things that I have found personally is that when you read her writings for yourself, you're going to find that 
God's truth is found in her writings. And as I went through school all the way on up, so many times you would hear classmates who would criticize Ellen White. They would say, oh, Ellen White says this, or Ellen White says that, and I don't really believe in her. But ironically, many of them had never read her writings. And what I found for me is that because I had read her writings from a very early age, I knew that what they were saying was not true. So if you're going to make an attack against something, you need to at least know that what you're attacking, you've actually read and you can speak, not just based on what someone else has said, but based on your own personal experience. And so I'm thankful to my parents as well. They encouraged me to continue with um, reading her writings. They would, every time we would go to ABC, my dad would buy me a new book that I hadn't yet read by Ellen White. And so I've read through these books throughout my life. I've probably read through The Great Controversy oh, six or seven times now. And you always learn something new. And it's very powerful, and it's very poignant, and you see that the messages in the book, it talks about the past, the present, and the future, and there are applications all the way through for the time that we are living in now. So if you've never read the book, now's the time. Go to the GYC booth in the exhibit hall, $3.50. Outside of, if you could get a, a Bible for the same cost, outside of that, that's the best investment you can make with $3.50. So if you haven't read the book, now's the time to start reading it. So that's just a personal encouragement, a personal testimony for what um, we're talking about. And of course, you know, because this whole theme for GYC is about the great controversy, before men and angels, the organizers of GYC wanted Brian and I to do a seminar or a presentation on the book, The Great Controversy itself. Because, you know, we can talk about The Great Controversy, and we're going to look at passages of Scripture that also talk about The Great Controversy. But if you want the best summarized high-yield version of The Great Controversy, read the book. So, now, as you know, Ellen G. White is the author of the book, The Great Controversy. And... I thought that as we start our presentation on this book, that it would be helpful to hear from her, in her own words, the importance of this book. Doesn't that make sense? Because, see, here's another thing that I've seen. How many of you have heard people say, well, The Great Controversy is a great book if you're sharing it with fellow Adventists, but don't give it to non-Adventists. And be careful to not share it from up front or you name it or whatever. You know, what's interesting is, is that they usually don't have backup from the Bible or the writings of Ellen White to make those assertions. And I felt that it would be useful to hear what Ellen White herself has to say about the usefulness of the book, The Great Controversy. How should it be used? What is its importance, and what did she think about this book that she wrote herself? And this quote is from Letter 281, 1905. It's in your program booklet, and actually Jeff Marshall, the Vice President for Evangelism, read this quote up front last night. This is Letter 281, 1905. The great controversy should be very widely circulated. So, very widely circulated. That's, that's pretty 
important. And then she says it contains the story of the past, the present, and the future. In its outline of the closing scenes of this earth's history, it bears a powerful testimony in behalf of the truth. So it has an outline of the closing scenes of this earth's history. It has a powerful testimony. And notice what she says here. This is very important. I am more anxious to see a wide circulation for this book than for any others I have written. For in the great controversy, the last message of warning to the world is given more distinctly than in any of my other books. Ellen White says that she was more anxious to see a wide circulation. Sometimes we say, well, let's do Steps to Christ or Desire of Ages or Christ Object Lessons, and those are great books, and we should give them a wide circulation. But the servant of the Lord who wrote this book and all the others I just mentioned said that she was more anxious to see a wide circulation for this book than for any others that she had written because in this book it contains the last message of, the, of warning to the world that is more distinct than in any of her other books. And so that's just a starting point. Now we're going to go through several other statements. But this tells us that if Ellen White thought that this book should be very widely circulated, just as a starting point, is she wanting this to just be circulated to Seventh-day Adventists? No. She wants this book to be circulated to non-believers, to get it into the hands of as many people as possible. Now, I would dare say that many of you in this room know of at least or have heard of a story of at least someone who has joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church because they read the Great Controversy. Now, you might hear a story here and there of someone who has joined the Adventist Church because someone gave them a Steps to Christ or someone gave them a Desire of Ages, and that's very possible, and those are great books. But by and large, most of the stories of I, that I hear of people who picked up a copy of a book by Ellen White and they read their way into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's because they read the book, The Great Controversy. And so what I want to say to you today is we need to stop being ashamed or scared of her writings or of her books. Because these books bring people into the truth, and it contains a very distinct warning for God's people living in the last days. Now, here's another statement. This is Cole Porter Ministry, page 123. This whole chapter is very good, and this is what Ellen White says, and she has a few other books mentioned here as well. She says, In the Desire of Ages, Patriarchs and Prophets, the Great Controversy, and in Daniel and the Revelation, which that's by Uriah Smith, there is precious instruction. These books must be regarded as of special importance. And what does she say here? How much effort? Every effort should be made to get them before the people. So this is also showing us just how important these books are, that every effort should be made to get these books before the people. So that means we shouldn't be hiding them, so to speak, and not acknowledging that the books exist. Now, we need to get these books before the people. Every effort should be made to get them before the people. And here's another statement. Um, Cole Porter Ministry, again, page 123. The light given was that thoughts on Daniel and the Revelation, the great controversy, and patriarchs and prophets would make their way. They contain the very message the people must have the special light God had given his people. 
And notice this, she says, the angels of God would prepare the way for these books in the hearts of the people. Do you want to work with the angels of God? You know, I think you have an opportunity tomorrow to go out and pass out some of these books. The angels of God are preparing the way for you. Isn't that awesome? So if the angels of God are preparing the way in the hearts of the people for these books, don't you think these books are important? Again, these are some statements just showing how important this book is. Here's another statement. The results of the circulation of this book, The Great Controversy, are not to be judged by what now appears. By reading it, some souls will be aroused and will have courage to unite themselves at once with those who keep the commandments of God. But a much larger number who read it will not take their position until they see the very events taking place that are foretold in it. So that's interesting. You know, you say, oh, you know, I've gone out and passed out great controversy and I haven't seen hardly anyone join the church. What good is it doing? And yet, the thing is, what is contained in this book is so clear and so distinct that as the final events start to take place, people are going to say, hey, I read a book that said these very things would happen. And then they'll say, you know what, I better go find that book again, and then they'll be able to connect in with people like us who go out and preach the message as the final crisis unfolds. And this quote continues, this is Cole Porter Ministry 128. The fulfillment of some of the predictions will inspire faith that others also will come to pass, and when the earth is lightened with the glory of God. When is that? Yeah, that's Revelation 18.1. That's the loud cry of Revelation 18. When the earth is lightened with the glory of God in the closing work, many souls will take their position on the commandments of God as the result of this agency. So Ellen White is saying, if you want to know how to get people to come out of Babylon when the loud cry goes out in Revelation 18, get this book into the hands of the people. They're going to read it now and they're going to say, Wow, that sounds kind of interesting. A Sunday law and all the world following after the papacy. I don't see that happening right now. I mean, I just don't see it. I mean, and if they've never heard these things before, logically speaking, you could see maybe how they might think that way. But they read it and they file those thoughts away. And then as they see those very events happening, and as the latter rain starts to be poured out upon God's people, as we go forth to give the loud cry, many people who have read these books are going to take their position on the Lord's side. So that's why it's so important for us to get this book into the hands of people that are not in our faith because they're going to come out. Now let me say this. If you're going to put this book into the hands of people out there in the community that are not part of our faith, I would certainly encourage you to read the book if you have never done so. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, and you have never read the book, The Great Controversy, boy, it's getting late in Earth's history to not get the instruction that's in that book. Put down some of those other books and pick up The Great Controversy. Let's keep going here. Another statement. God gave me the light contained in The Great Controversy and Patriarchs and Prophets, and this light was needed to arouse the people to prepare for the great day of God, which is just before us. So notice, 
not only is it going to be bring people from out there into God's church in the last days, it's also going to arouse Seventh-day Adventists to be prepared for the great day of God, which is just before us. Now, in case you're thinking that Seventh-day Adventism is just doing wonderful, great, and fine, all you need to do is read your Bible. Read the parable of Matthew 25. The whole church is sound asleep. You read Revelation chapter 3, we're in a lukewarm condition. Jesus wants to vomit us out of his mouth. And so what we need, we need to go read this book, and we need to realize, wow, the great day of God is just before us. We need to wake up. And just in case you're saying, well, I'm part of the wise virgins, I'm not sleeping. Wait a minute, no, all ten are sleeping. And that's a whole other sermon. The difference is that the wise virgins are converted, but you know what? The wise virgins are sleeping as well. And you know how I, I know that everyone in the church is sleeping? Let me just give you an illustration. If on Monday morning or Tuesday morning next week, after we all get home from GYC and a nuclear bomb went off in Los Angeles, and by the next week, leaders of the nation were saying, we need to get back to God and let's for, enact a Sunday law. Every Seventh-day Adventist would be shocked out of our minds, all of us in this room, because, oh yeah, we know that's coming Sunday, but we don't plan on it happening anytime soon, right? We're not planning on it happening next week. And so when those final events kick into place, everyone's going to wake up. And so this book... Patriarchs and Prophets, the great controversy has light needed to arouse the people to prepare for the great day of God, which is just before us. These books contain God's direct appeal to the people. Thus he is speaking to the people in stirring words, urging them to make ready for his coming. The light God has given in these books should not be concealed. And notice it says, Ellen White says, he is speaking to the people in stirring words. And I might say something about that as well. It's my settled conviction that it's far past time for messages, sermons in our churches to not be stirring the people. You know, it shouldn't be the case that when we go to church on Sabbath, we could hear the same sermon the next day on Sunday morning. And again, look, these sermons aren't necessarily error. That's wonderful if they're precious truth, but listen, we're Seventh-day Adventists. We have a message to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. We should be giving messages that are stirring the people, the hearts and the minds of the people, that Jesus is coming soon. Now listen as well. What we're, not, what we're talking here, we're not talking about the scary hope of the coming of Jesus. We're supposed to be talking about the blessed hope, right? But the problem is, is that the coming of Jesus is more like a scary hope to many Seventh-day Adventists because many Seventh-day Adventists aren't particularly excited about the coming of Jesus. We like the good life we're living right now. We enjoy the good, nice things of this world. And what we need, we need to be stirred. We need to be awakened. We need to be encouraged and stirred by the messages from our preachers, our pastors, you name it. We need to be stirred for the coming of the Lord. And what I would say is, if we go back to the book, The Great Controversy, when you study this book, this book contains light that will arouse people to prepare for the great day of God. So, some more statements here. Patriarchs and Prophets and The Great Controversy are books 
that are especially adapted to who? Those who have newly come to the faith. So, you know, I've helped out with evangelistic meetings actually in several different places throughout the world, not just, you know, where I grew up. I was in Trinidad for two years, so I've seen a little bit of evangelism with different styles in various places. And I'll say this, I've been through meetings where people never even heard about Ellen White, and then they were baptized. And I'm not exactly sure why that happened, but what I'm saying here is that books like Patriarchs and Prophets and The Great Controversy, according to Ellen White, are especially adapted to those who have newly come to the faith, that they may be established in the truth. And I mean, when I was, I won't say exactly where I was, I was somewhere not in the United States for a meeting. There were people who were baptized who, like I said, never heard about Ellen White. And after they were baptized, they um, asked their new Seventh-day Adventist pastor to perform Catholic rites for their dead grandmother that passed away. So what I'm saying is, you know, there's some education that can be done, and if we educate the people properly, you know, they didn't know any better. That was just, you know, and that, that can be avoided if we do things properly. So these books are especially adapted to those who have newly come to the faith, that they may be established in the truth, the dangers are pointed out that should be avoided by the churches. And continuing, those who become thoroughly acquainted with the lessons in these books will see the dangers before them and will be able to discern the plain, straight path marked out for them. They will be kept from strange paths. They will make straight paths for their feet, lest the lame be turned out of the way. And that's from Hebrews 12, 12 through 14. So here you have Ellen White saying that if new converts, become thoroughly acquainted with the lessons in books like Patriarchs and Prophets, Great Controversy, they're going to be able to discern truth from error. They're going to be kept from strange paths. They're going to be kept from all these strange things that keep coming into the church because the light of God's truth will make it clear how we should walk in the straight and narrow pathway, so to speak. Okay. Now, those are just a few statements from Ellen White about the importance of, the, of this book. So here's what we see from those statements. This book should be given a wide circulation. She's more anxious for that book to be given a wider circulation than for any other book that she's written. It's adapted to new converts. It's good for God's people in the church to arouse them from their sleep. And it's, when it's put into the hands of non-believers, it will bring many of them out of Babylon into God's remnant church in the last days. So it's an all-encompassing book that's really good for everyone. Now, what I'm going to share now is sort of the background story of this book and the struggle that took place um, when Ellen White was working on putting this book into publication. And so we're going to see Satan attack White to prevent its publication. And I'm going to read to you a story that um, Ellen White's grandson, Arthur White, um, put together describing what happened with the Great Controversy. Ellen White has this Great Controversy vision of 1858, which 10 years earlier she had seen similar things in vision. But with this vision, which we're going to read, she was actually instructed by the Lord to put the Great Controversy vision into writing. So here's the story behind the Great Controversy. The weekend of March 13 and 14, 1858, 
Elder James White and his wife, Ellen G. White, attended meetings at Lovett's Grove near Bowling Green, Ohio. On Sunday afternoon, the 14th, a funeral service was conducted by James White in the schoolhouse where the Sabbath meetings had been held. Following her husband's discourse, Mrs. White arose and began to speak words of comfort to the mourners. So, so far, so good. And, you know, if you're the family, you have to be, you know, touched that some of the leaders of the church have come to your relative's funeral. James White, he's one of the leaders of Adventism, Ellen White as well. And James White gives the message. Now Ellen White's standing up to speak words of comfort. Now notice this. While thus speaking, she was taken off in vision, and for two hours, during which time the congregation remained in the building, the Lord, through divine revelation, opened up to her many matters of importance to the church. Now this is interesting. So now, all of a sudden, you're at your relative's funeral, and Ellen Ellen White is off in vision for two hours, and you're just sitting there waiting for her to come out of vision. That's obviously got to be one of the most interesting funerals that anyone who was there probably ever went to. And here she is off in vision for two hours, and of this she wrote, In the vision at Lovett's Grove, most of the matter which I had seen ten years before concerning the great controversy of the ages between Christ and Satan was repeated. And I was instructed to write it out. So she's saying, I'd seen this ten years before, but now it's repeated and I'm told that I need to write it out. I was shown that while I should have to contend with the powers of darkness, for Satan would make strong efforts to hinder me, yet I must put my trust in God and angels would not leave me in the conflict. So she's saying that she's actually going to be at the very center of this great controversy, that because she's going to write out this vision, Satan is going to come after her and there's going to be a controversy um, between Christ and Satan over what God is trying to do through Ellen White. Continuing. The day following, James and Ellen White began their homeward journey. On the train, they reviewed their recent experiences and discussed plans for writing out the vision and for publishing that portion relating to the great controversy. This, it was decided, should be Mrs. White's first work after reaching home. So just reading between the lines here, you know, Satan doesn't have the ability to read our minds, right? But he can certainly listen to us when we talk. So he knew that Ellen White had some vision at this funeral, but now James and Ellen White talk out loud to each other, and what they talk about is what she saw in the vision, and they're making plans now for her to write out the vision and for that vision to be published. Obviously, Satan's not going to want to have that happen, so notice what happens next. Little did they realize the anger of Satan because of this revelation of his character and wiles, or the intensity of his determination to defeat the plans for the writing and publishing of the proposed book. You do realize that Satan doesn't want to have his game plan exposed, right? And so, continuing. Arriving at Jackson, Michigan, en route to Battle Creek, they visited their old friends at the home of Daniel R. Palmer. At this time, Mrs. White was in usual health, and the following experience, as given in her own words, came as a complete surprise. As I was conversing with Sister Palmer, my tongue refused to utter what I wished to say and seemed large and numb. 
a strange cold sensation struck my heart, passed over my head and down my right side. For a time I was insensible, but was aroused by the voice of earnest prayer. I tried to use my left limbs, but they were perfectly useless. Now as a neurologist, you know, if I get a call from the emergency room describing such a scenario, I would say, yeah, this sounds like a stroke. And so here you see Satan is attacking Ellen White. He is trying to take her life. And that's the reference. Um, you can get it off of the White Estate. That article is there. It's by Arthur White um, for the story that we just read. But here you see Ellen White has the vision of the Great Controversy. And 10 years earlier, she had had the vision. But this time in 1858, the Lord tells her, you need to ride out this Great Controversy picture that I've painted for you in vision. You need to put it in writing so that the people can be warned of what is happening and of what is to come. And once Ellen White and James White discuss the plan, Satan gets aroused. He's like, I've got to put a stop to this. We can't let this message get out to the people or it's going to warn them. It's going to prepare them so that they will see through my end time strategy to deceive God's people. And so Satan tries to attack Ellen White. Satan clearly tried to destroy Ellen White so that the great controversy would never be published. Now, if you read through the story, you know, initially she was finally able to start writing. She would sometimes write just one page a day. And eventually she was able to get a small pamphlet together that was published in the Great Controversy. It was initially seen in early writings and then it developed into like spiritual gifts and then the Spirit of Prophecy volumes, finally into the 1888 edition, and then finally the current 1911 edition that we have now. That's the story of the Great Controversy. And it's interesting, if you look at the, the history of her life, and I didn't put all of that in here, when they started to put um, the great controversy into more extensive writing because she continued to have more visions and to, be, to receive more light. As these books were expanded, Satan would attack her health. She would be attacked and she would have difficulty. But every time the Lord would intervene and she would be able to get this book into writing. So when I see just how much Satan fought to prevent Ellen White from getting this book into print, don't you think this book is important? Don't you think we should study this book and read this book and apply the messages and the principles into our lives and share this message with other people? This book is so important, and we're going to get into the messages, but now I want to um, segue into this issue of the great controversy, which you see in Revelation chapter 12. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is the one chapter in Scripture that so clearly describes the great controversy. You see, in, starting in verse 1, this great wonder in heaven, you have the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And you see that in verse 3, the great red dragon attacks the woman. You see that Jesus came to this earth and then he's caught up to the throne. You see, you step back in time that there was war in heaven between Michael and the dragon or Christ and Satan. And then you see that the war comes to this earth and Satan, the accuser of the brethren, attacks God's people. And so the war in heaven comes down to this earth, and this is where things become very interesting. We come down to verse 17, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, which is one of the famous verses in Adventism. 
but somehow I don't think that people are paying attention to the message of this verse anymore. Because if we pay attention to the message in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, you can see that verse being fulfilled before our very eyes in Adventism today in many places. Revelation 12, verse 17, it says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, here you have this whole great controversy scenario. You see the woman, which represents God's church, and you see that Christ from the woman was here on this earth. He's caught up to heaven, but he keeps his church here. It goes into the wilderness, and Satan is attacking God's church in the wilderness. But then God raises up a remnant in the last days, just before Jesus comes, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing. How many Seventh-day Adventists have you heard that are ashamed of the remnant label? Well, let me tell you a story right now. I just read this story last night. There is a former Seventh-day Adventist pastor. He was pastoring somewhere in California. I'm not going to name his name, and I'm not going to say exactly where he was. But some of you in the know probably know who I'm talking about. He is, um, well, he was bringing in, um, he was trying to attempt to bring in homosexuality as being acceptable in this church and so on and so forth. And the conference said that's too much, and so he resigned. I read this article last night where he said, you know, I had um, a big issue with my church for claiming to be the remnant church. And you know what he's doing now? As of yesterday, New Year's Day, he is entering on a one-year experiment of being an atheist. Now, in the article, and, and by the way, this article is on the Huffington Post, so this is a pretty big, you know, news agency. He's saying, I'm not an atheist yet, but I'm not going to pray I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to encourage people to pray. I'm not going to encourage people to read their Bible. And this is a guy that was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Now, here's the thing. When you read Revelation chapter 12, and you see that there's a great controversy between Christ and Satan, and you see that Satan is angry with God's end-time church, then you have to look at God's end-time church and say, okay, what is it about God's end-time church that is making the dragon angry? Is that not a good question? What is making Satan the dragon angry? Well, here's, here's what you see. What's the identifying characteristics of this woman? Well, she's the remnant, and she keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. Isn't it interesting, at least in the various places that I've lived in the last 10 to 12 years of my life, that the two things that many Seventh-day Adventists have so much trouble with is obedience and the spirit of prophecy. Isn't that interesting? And yet that's the identifying characteristics of God's last day church, that they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you can certainly, there can be issues like if you have a, a religion where you try to keep the commandments apart from Jesus, then yeah, that's a big problem. But when 
God's people, by his grace and through his power, are allowing the Spirit of God to transform their lives so that they're keeping the commandments of God and they're following the writings of Ellen White and they're still accused of being legalists and fanatics or whatever, that's where you see the spirit of the dragon coming out, that he is attacking God's last day remnant church, which keep the commandments of God, which includes the seventh day Sabbath, and have the testimony of Jesus. So, of course, Revelation 12, 17, um, as we see, Revelation 19, 10 shows that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19, 10, and I want you to read this. I'm going to read this verse. Revelation 19, 10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, why do I read that verse? Well, here's why I read the verse. Because have any of you heard people say, well, you know, they say the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But there are some people today that are saying the testimony of Jesus is simply the testimony of the work of Jesus in your life. Have you heard that? Are you aware of people that are saying that today? And so the reason why I read Revelation 19.10 is part of the verse, John falls at the, feet of the, the foot of the angel to worship, and the angel says, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now let's go to Revelation 22, verse 9, and notice the similarity between Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22, verse 9. Revelation 22, verse 9 says, Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. So again, in verse 8, John was going to fall at the, foot of the, angel, or the feet of the angel to worship him. And the angel says in verse 9, Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am uh, thy fellow servant. Does that sound the same so far? Let's keep reading. And of thy brethren the prophets. Now, in Revelation 19, 10, it says, And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. But here in Revelation 22, verse 9, it says, and of thy brethren the prophets. So we're not just talking about like, oh yeah, I have the testimony of what Jesus has done in my life. No, no. The testimony of Jesus, when it says it's the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19, 10, and Revelation 22, verse 9, is clearly identifying this as the prophetic gift. And so, one of the identifying characteristics of God's remnant church is that they keep the commandments of God and they have the prophetic gift. And name me any other church in the world that keeps all ten commandments and has the prophetic gift. Sure, the Mormons have Joseph Smith, but they're not keeping the fourth commandment. And there's other religions that also have prophets, but there is no religion in the world today that has a prophet and who keep the Ten Commandments. We are the remnant church of Bible prophecy, friends, and we should not be ashamed of that. That is an identifying characteristic in Revelation chapter 12 of, God's, of God having a people. And when you see the remnant label under attack, when you see people attacking the Ten Commandments, when you see people attacking the writings of Ellen White, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because Satan is angry with God's last day church. Because he knows that when God has a church who follows the testimony of Jesus and who keeps the commandments of God, he's going to have a very difficult time in deceiving that church. And you know, when we talk about the gift of prophecy, this is the testimony of Jesus. 
lot of times people try to turn it into a personal attack against LNY. They try to analyze Ellen White, the person, and this and that and whatever. Listen, she was God's messenger. She was a mouthpiece for Jesus. Into you versus Ellen White or whatever you want to do, but realize for herself. Do you really think that Ellen White wanted to spend her whole life waking up at 2 in the morning or sometimes midnight to write messages of, messages of instruction to people in the church? Now, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll speak to you personally. I mean, I happen to be an elder in my church. <laughs> Confronting someone who is living in sin or living in error, um, whether you're an elder in your church or you've been a school principal or a pastor or whatever it is, that is not fun. And if anyone tells you that they're having a great old time ha just handing out messages of reproof and 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 discipline, and, and you name it, that is not a fun job. And Ellen White was told by the Lord that when I give you this message to warn brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, you need to follow through or else, you know, I will, you know, give this to someone else. That In order for you to, to please God, you must do this. Ellen White was not doing this to have a good old fun time. This was not some personal hobby horse of her to write letters of reproof, instruction, and whatever. She did it because she loved Jesus and because she loved his people. And so, this is the testimony of Jesus. And so the reason why I've spent some time on this is simply because we need to be aware of the fact that the writings of Ellen White have come under attack by Satan. And you can see it, especially in the last 35 years or so. Walter Ray wrote The White Lie. He accused her of plagiarism and so on and so forth. And of course, his charges were baseless. The, um, he tried to say, well, this passage she copied from here, and you look at it, and it's not even saying the same thing. Furthermore, she, even here in the book, The Great Controversy, uh, she sets out at the beginning and says, you know what? I've, I've used works from other authors when they can say it in a very clear way. And at her time, that was not plagiarism. That was following the copyright laws of her error. So people will try all these creative ways to get around following her instruction. They'll say, oh, she plagiarized, or she did this, or whatever. And fine, we can answer those charges. I mean, F.D. Nickel did a, a great job in his book, Ellen White and Her Critics, way back in the 1950s, of answering all those charges. He answered all the charges that Canwright originally raised. And D.M. Canwright, who apostatized from the church, his arguments have been rehashed by people like Walter Ray and Desmond Ford and people that have come on since then, and there's really nothing to it. It's just people who are simply trying to get around her clear, straightforward instructions. So the bottom line is this. There is a great controversy between Christ and Satan, and God has his last day church who keep the commandments of God through the power and grace of Jesus and who have the gift of prophecy in their midst. This is an identifying characteristic that helps God's people to be prepared to stand through the final crisis. And Satan is fighting against God's last day church. A few statements here. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. This is Second Selected Messages, page 78. Now, notice this statement. She says, the very last deception of Satan will be to, be, to, be, to make of none effect. Notice she does not say the very last deception of Satan will be to throw out 
the testimonies. Do you notice the difference? Because some people say, oh yeah, I remember Ellen White's the last deception will be to throw out her writings. That's not what she said. Ellen White is not saying that the last deception will be to get Seventh-day Adventists just to completely throw out her writings. She said to, it's to make her writings of none effect. Now let me give you an example. You've probably all heard of Desmond Ford. My friend Kevin Paulson here was at Pacific Union College the day Desmond Ford made his famous speech where he threw out the sanctuary. You know what Desmond Ford said about Ellen White? That her writings were inspiring but not inspired. So he's not telling you to not read her writings, he's just saying they're not inspired. That's making her writings of none effect. Now that's probably, you know, getting closer to the end of the spectrum of almost throwing her writings out. Another way that you can make her writings of none effect is to just simply not use them anymore. You're not saying that you don't believe them, but we just simply stop hearing her instruction in our churches. Uh, we just won't use her from the pulpit anymore. That's too offensive. When in fact, as we saw at the beginning of our seminar, her writings are especially designed to ground new believers in the faith and to attract people. And again, we can identify many people who have come into Seventh-day Adventism, especially through the book, The Great Controversy. And of course, that doesn't mean that you're going to pound people over the head and be all negative um, when you use, use your writings, but to simply stop using them. That's another way that you can make her writings of none effect. Here's another way that I've seen people make her writings of none effect. People will say, well, yeah, I believe in LMY, but I'm sola scriptura. Have you heard that? So, for example, there's the famous statement in Second Selected Messages, page 36, where there will be dancing with drums and music, like what happened in the Holy Flesh Movement in Indiana. She says that the, the rational senses of her mind can't discern the moving of the Holy Spirit when um, there's such a bedlam of noise. And she says this will happen just before the close of probation. And you can see this happening in many churches today. And you show people that evidence, and they say, well, show me from the Bible. I'm sola scriptura. Here's what I say to that. I'm sola scriptura as well. I'm sola scriptura. The Bible and the Bible only. And you know what my Bible teaches me? My Bible teaches me in Revelation 12, 17 that God's last day church will have the gift of prophecy. So if you're going to be sola scriptura and then you don't regard the prophetic gift for God's last day church, you're actually not sola scriptura. So you have to use some logic here and um, people will again find whatever creative way that they can get around to the, the most straightforward, clear statements of Ellen White. And here's the bottom line. Now, you know, and I say this. If you're trying to convince someone to believe in Ellen White and they're not converted, you're fighting an uphill battle. The bottom line is this, that each one of us here, myself included, we need to be converted, we need to be surrendered to the Lord so that when he tries to speak to us through his writings, whether it's in the Bible or through the writings of Ellen White, that when we see the word of the Lord and it says, this is the way, walk ye in it, we will follow that testimony. Otherwise, we're going to come up with all sorts of excuses. Now, continuing, Second Selected Message is 78. Satan will work ingeniously 
in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. And here you see it. He, he's, Satan is doing whatever he can. He's working ingeniously through different ways, through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. And, and you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, I mean, you know, you grow up with friends in the church and like I said earlier in the presentation, they'd never read her writings and yet they would make fun of her and they'd say this and that about Ellen White. And it's like, well, why don't you read her writings for yourself and see what the Lord has to say to you? You know, maybe don't start with volume nine of the testimonies. Maybe start with great controversy or steps to Christ or desire of ages. But when you read her writings, you're going to see that she loved Jesus and she wants you to love Jesus. But yet people will say, well, I'm not sure I believe her because she said that we shouldn't ride bicycles. Yeah, they don't even understand the context of that statement. These were like extremely ex expensive circus style bicycles that would have been a tremendous waste of money. And the principle today is like, why are you driving a $200,000 Lamborghini when you could buy a $25,000 Toyota Camry or whatever, you know? And, you know, again, we find, and then people say, oh, well, yeah, you know, she said we shouldn't go to the movies. It's like, well, I wonder what she would say now. I mean, the movies back then were fairly tame, and now people are like completely pornographic, and there's violence and murder, and it's like, oh, yeah, she'd be okay with that, or the Lord would be okay with that. I mean, let's, let's leave Ellen White out of that. You really think that Jesus is okay with you going into a movie where there's pornographic scenes and murder and shooting and all sorts of violence? Yeah, that's really good. So, again, um, if we're simply willing to surrender our lives to the Lord, he's going to lead us and, and direct us in the way that we should go. Another statement. There will be a hatred kindled against the testimonies, which is satanic, the workings of Satan will be to unsettle the faith of the churches in them for this reason. And I'll just say this, you know, um, when you think of the term satanic, that's obviously about the most negative connotation that you can come up with, right? And you realize that Satan is very pleased when we think of him of, of like the guy that has horns and a pitchfork. You realize that Satan's a brilliant being and that he can make things look really attractive and really smooth. And so, when Ellen White says that there will be a hatred kindled against the testimonies which is satanic, that doesn't mean that people are going to have horns and a pitchfork as they go out against the writings of Ellen White. It could be very subtle and very smooth. But notice why um, Satan tries to unsettle the faith of God's people. Satan cannot have so clear a track to bring in his deceptions and bind up souls in his delusions if the warnings and reproofs and counsels of the Spirit of God are heeded. You know, if God's people would simply read the Bible and read the Spirit of Prophecy, a lot of the issues that have come into the church over the last 50 plus years would not have happened if we were simply studying. And you know, people say, oh, well, again, I'm still a scriptura. You know, Ellen White says that I wouldn't have had to, to even write the testimonies of God's people have been studying the Bible, and she wrote that about the Adventist pioneers who were the so-called legalists of the whatever 1800s who supposedly knew their Bibles, and yet the testimonies were needed then. What about today? Now, in the last 10 minutes of our opening presentation, I'm going to give you a big picture of where Brian and I are headed in our seminar, and what you're going to see is the the sola scriptura principle throughout the book, The Great Controversy, the preeminence of scripture throughout the Bible, and there's three key sections here. 
you're going to see that there was faithfulness to the word of God in spite of apostasy. So this is the history that is being chronicled by the book, The Great Controversy. It starts off, other than the first chapter describing the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the Jews being destroyed for their um, rejection of Christ. Once you get past that chapter, it describes the faithfulness to the word of God in spite of apostasy. And that takes you, and we'll get into this. And then, then you see the re rediscovery of the word of God. And finally, the apostasy reemerges at the end of time, yet the rem remnant will be faithful. That's really the big picture of the great controversy from the time of the cross to the second coming. So the early Christian church is a demonstration of faithfulness to the word of God in the midst of apostasy. And here you can see this is a picture of faithful Christians in the Roman Colosseum being thrown before lions and gladiators. 2 Timothy 3.12, which we all know well, yea, and all that live, shall live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The first century Christian church and the church in the wilderness, the Waldenses, they were willing to face death for their belief in God and for the word of God. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, this is Great Controversy, page 48, 40, 48 paragraph 3. As we ponder on the faithfulness of the early Christian church and of the Waldenses and the wilderness. And, and um, Brian's going to be talking about the Waldenses and the reformers in our next presentation, so you'll want to come back for that. It's going to be very powerful. Here's what Ellen White says. There is another and more important question that should engage the attention of the churches of today. The Apostle Paul declares that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why is it then that persecution seems in a great degree to, to slumber? The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world standard and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do our lives exhibit the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles? Now listen, you know, people talk about like, oh, I want to be like Jesus. Jesus is so nice. Jesus is so meek. Jesus is so loving. And that is all true and that is all wonderful. But notice this. Do you realize that Jesus, in his three and a half years of ministry, was so pure and so holy that the leaders of the nation and of his church could not stand him and said, get out of here, we're going to kill you. Jesus' life was so pure and so holy that the world could not stand his existence. And the question you have to ask yourself today is, is your life so pure and so holy that the world cannot stand your existence? Or are you simply just fitting right on in, conforming to the world, living by the same standard, enjoying the same entertainment, the same movies, the same sports, the same you name it? The same inner dress and fashion and whatever it is. The reason why the church fits right into the world today is because we've conformed to the world standard and the world has no problem with us. We're not like the early Christian church, but the, a time is coming that that's going to change. Continuing, it is only because of the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular with, with the world. Let there be a revival of the faith and power of the early church 
and the spirit of persecution will be revived, and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. Now, Ellen White says in another statement, don't bring on the time of trouble before the time of trouble. So I'm not talking about and going out and being obnoxious and putting up billboards that say the Pope is the Antichrist, you know, stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just simply saying that if we lived lives of holiness and purity, the world would want to have nothing to do with us. They would want to get rid of us. And that time is coming. And then you see that the word of God reemerges. So we talk about the early Christian church, faithfulness in spite of apostasy, the early Christians, the Walden Seas. Now the word of God reemerges. And again, Brian's going to be talking about the Protestant Reformation. Here you see reformers such as John Wycliffe, Huss and Jerome, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, and many others who rediscovered the power of the word of God. And they realized that the word of God had been hidden by the papacy during the Dark Ages and that they were not getting the real story. Notice what Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 120. For among, foremost among those who were called to lead the church from the darkness of popery into the light of a pure faith stood Martin Luther, zealous, ardent, and devoted, knowing no fear but the fear of God and acknowledging no foundation for religious faith but the Holy Scriptures. Luther was the man for his time. Through him, God accomplished a great work for the reformation of the church and the enlightenment of the world. Notice, he acknowledged no foundation for religious faith but the Holy Scriptures. And of course, the, the papacy wanted to get rid of him uh, the Lord preserved him. And this takes us to the final big picture overview of the Great Controversy. And this is the rise of the Second Advent Movement, the remnant who stays faithful as the, as the apostasy of Babylon at the end of time reemerges. And the final controversy is going to be over fidelity to the Word of God. Here we see the Millerite movement, Great Controversy, page 401, of all the great religious movements since the days of the Apostles. None have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel the holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. Now, we're going to spend a whole seminar hour this afternoon talking about the Advent movement. And this takes us to Earth's final movement, Great Controversy, page 464. So the Millerite movement was the beginning, the rise of the Advent movement, but we haven't seen anything yet. We are looking to the day when the Advent movement explodes. And this is what Ellen White's talking about here, Great Controversy 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. And I would say to you today, that is what we need to be looking for. As we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we need to have that revival of primitive godliness that hasn't been seen since the days of the apostles. And we need to learn to have the love of the world separated from ourselves where the love of the world has supplanted love for God and his word. That, and unfortunately, that has happened to many people in our church today, where the love of this world has supplanted love for God. In Great Controversy 611, 612, 
The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God and marked its opening. Servants of God, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. This is the loud cry message, earth's final warning, and we're going to have a, a section on that. And then finally, I'm going to read to you a statement from Great Controversy, page 623, and Brian has the statement in his seminar on the time of trouble, which you'll hear tomorrow as well. Great Controversy, page 623, and this is what we read, Now will our great high priest is making the atonement for us. We should seek to become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to, the, to yield to the power of temptation. Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold. Some sinful desire is cherished by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And you may be saying, oh, well, yeah, that was Jesus. But notice she continues. Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. Now notice this statement. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. So here, notice, those who stand in the time of trouble are going to be like Jesus. They keep, look, Jesus kept the commandments of God. Did that make him a legalist? No, that made him righteous. And he's offering that righteousness to us, imputed and imparted. Because listen, if you're saying that I really can't be like Jesus and I can't really keep the commandments of God, yet Ellen White is saying this is to be the condition of those who will stand in the time of trouble. This is a serious issue. You can't just say, well, you can believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. There is a truth for God's people living in the last days. And what you believe matters because what you believe so many times dictates how we end up practicing and living our lives. Do we really surrender our lives fully and completely to Jesus so that he can come into our hearts and live out his life through us so that when the time of trouble comes, it may be said of us, the prince of this world cometh and have nothing in us. Not even by a thought could he yield to temptation. And Ellen White says in Faith I Live By, page 23, rather than saying this is the condition that those must be found in the time of trouble, she says, so it may be with us. And by the grace of God and through his power, we will be among the faithful who will stand in the crisis, who will give the message to the world. And so I've just given you an overview of the book. We're going to get into some of the key messages within the book as we move forward. We're going to take a short break. Brian is going to give us our next presentation, but let's close now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much that you have given us the privilege of being part of your remnant, that you have given us the gift of the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. Lord, I pray that we would not make it of none effect, but that we would utilize and, and make these writings a part of our lives to help prepare us to stand the final crisis. I pray that each person here would be part of the work um, of having sin removed from our lives that Jesus is doing right now in the most holy place of heaven above. That we would be part of the loud cry message to go to the world and that we would stand through the time of trouble. I thank you for each person here and for what you're doing here at GYC. Be with us now as we continue through our seminar. I pray in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.